Elias, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line, and I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 and 10, Whom shall we teach knowledge? And whom shall we make to understand doctrine? And then he answers, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand, want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend about this study, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word, line upon line. Yes, we are up to Acts chapter 2. Last week we began the book of Acts with chapter 1. We'll continue with chapter 2. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer and get into the study. Our Heavenly Father, we pause and come before your majestic throne, your merciful throne. We thank you so much, God, for your love and concern for us. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ, whom you sent to earth. And we just thank you, God, for his ministry. We pray now, Father, that through your grace, through your mercy, we might uh, study Acts chapter 2, line upon line, here a little, there a little, and that you bless our understanding, Father. And as you bless our understanding, you would deepen our faith and, and really conform us to, to the image of your Son, Jesus the Christ. We thank you, we praise you, we ask your blessing in Jesus' most holy name. As we begin uh, Acts chapter 2, I'd like to say it's really important as we study the, the word that we do not suffer from scriptural amnesia. Scriptural amnesia happens when we are in one chapter and we completely forget what we read in the previous chapters. And so we have to have we have to be able to link God's word line upon line and remember what we read previously. So we finished Luke. We are now into the book of Acts. But as we um, come into Acts in the early part here, chapters one and two, I just want to go back to the end of Luke, how Luke ended. In chapter 24 and verse 46, when Christ was, he had been resurrected and he was teaching his disciples, and in verse 46 he said unto them, <clears throat> Thus it is written, it is written, this is in the scriptures, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer. So we know he is the suffering servant, and Isaiah prophesied about him repeatedly. So he shows him, this is in the scriptures, and so it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. He had to be in the grave three days and three nights. So for those of you who celebrate uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, you're not celebrating the life and death of Christ according to the scriptures, because Christ had to be in the grave three days and three nights. And you don't get three days and three nights from Friday to Sunday morning. Verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So he's showing them this is what has to happen. 
that that repentance and remission of sins needs to be preached in his name among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And then he says in verse 48, and you are witnesses of these things. So they, they saw firsthand, and they experienced Christ firsthand, and, they, and he showed them in the scriptures exactly how his life, death, burial, and resurrection matched exactly the scriptures. And they are witnesses of these things. So they saw it firsthand. They read, he showed them the scriptures. And so they have to preach this. Verse 49. And he says, And behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. But wait you in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So that is how the gospel according to Luke ends with Christ commanding them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the Holy Spirit. Then last week we opened in Acts 1, and we read in verse 4, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, says he, you have heard of me. So as Luke closed, he told them to wait. Now he's spending 40 days with them, educating them, and, and now he's telling them what he told them before or commanding them what he commanded before, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So they are in the count from the wave sheaf offering, which happened during the days of unleavened bread. And from that offering, they count 50. That's why it's called Pente. Pente for 50. Pentecost, count 50. So they're counting 50. Christ is with them for 40 days. And then there's another 10 days that they have to complete the count to get to Pentecost. So now this is what brings us to Acts 2 and verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, the, the Hebrews called this the Feast of Weeks. So it was, they were counting seven weeks. The Greek called it Pentecost. So they were counting 50. So they're counting, counting, counting. Christ was with them for 40 days of that count. They had to count another 10 days to get to Pentecost. And so now it has fully come. So they, they, they've completed the count. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So again, we have to ask for those um, Christians who, who don't have this understanding of God's holy days, that believe that you know, when Christ died, uh, that the law was nailed to the cross and done away. And so there was no, um, under, no commitment to keeping these holy days, no committed. If they weren't keeping the Sabbath, so you know they believe everything switched and and, and uh, true Christians then kept Sunday. But if that were true, they were just keeping the Sabbath. Then they certainly wouldn't be keeping the high holy days. And Pentecost was one of these. In fact, you can't keep Pentecost unless you keep unleavened bread, because the count for Pentecost begins during the days of unleavened bread. And so uh, you can actually see, let me just see if I can quickly find this here. Yeah, I believe it's in Acts 20. I'll just see if I can quickly find it. Yeah, it, I don't really see it here, but um, <clears throat> I, was trying, I was trying to find a place where Paul uh, said, by all means, he, he must get to uh, Jerusalem to keep Pentecost. Uh, that he wants to keep it, keep, keep uh, Pentecost with with the brethren in Jerusalem. So this was the the apostle to the Gentiles years later, uh, still keeping these days. 
And here, uh, they obviously kept the, the days of unleavened bread in order to get the count of the wave sheaf offering to count 50 to come to Pentecost. And so they were still observing this. And they were all in one accord, all of them. There, there was no disagreement. There was not some saying, why are you doing this? We should be doing that. No, why? They, all were, they all were in agreement. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. So this is the promise of the Father, that they had to stay here, keeping this day in, in one accord until they received power from on high. And now this is that power that's going to come upon them. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven <clears throat> as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. So there were somewhere around, I believe, 150, 200 brethren here, and um, <clears throat> they were um, they were all together, and they were in agreement. It says here, uh, it says here, suddenly, they, uh, in verse two, um, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. They were all seated. And sometimes you'll see images of this day and the artist will have them standing, but they were all sitting. And they were sitting most likely because they were beginning their, their Pentecost service, their high day service. And so they're getting seat, they're getting ready to have the speaker go up and, and then suddenly this uh, mighty wind comes rushing and, and it fills the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them, each one of them, cloven tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each of them. And I recall that scripture now is that I was looking for. It's Acts 18, not 20. Acts 18 and verse 21, where Paul says, I must by all means, I must by all means, this is Acts 18, verse 21, the apostle to the Gentiles, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem. I, I must get to Jerusalem to keep this feast. But I will return again unto you, if God will, and he sailed from Ephesus. So he was there preaching the gospel to the Ephesians, and then he had to leave them in order to get to uh, Jerusalem in time to keep the feast. This is the apostle to the Gentiles. So if, if they're still keeping the high holy days, why would they do away with the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath? And so now here they are keeping Pentecost, <clears throat> and tongues of fire come upon each one of them. And they were all, every one of them, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this one verse, Acts 2, verse 4, has caused so much controversy in the Christian church, in the Christian churches, the Christian community, where some now will say, and many teach, that unless you speak in tongues, you are not manifesting the Holy Spirit, and you're not a true Christian unless the Spirit takes you over and you speak in tongues. And I can tell you categorically that is completely false. That is untrue. That, that, is not, that does not come from Christianity. And we don't have to go far to prove that that is completely false. We just have to stay in the Scripture and read it line upon line. So, you know, there's a big Pentecostal movement. And I'm not, in fact, if you want more information on where the speaking in tongues in the Pentecostal movement comes from, write to me personally 
at Adrian Davis, A-D-R-I-A-N-D-A-V-I-S, Adrian Davis, at cgicanada.org. Adrian Davis at cgicanada.org. Write to me personally and say you would like to know what is the root of the Pentecost movement, the Pentecostal movement that really began in the United States and it spread worldwide. And it's a very, very big movement. What is its root? Because its root is not biblical. And I, I, don't, I don't want to get distracted with that right now, but I just want to state categorically that if you're in a church that is speaking in tongues, where, where you just get overtaken by, quote unquote, the spirit, and, and, and you don't, you're, you're speaking, but you don't know what you're saying, this does not come from God. It does not come from the Bible. And I'm not trying to offend anybody. I just want to speak the truth. And I want you to understand the truth. And I challenge you to write to me so I can show you the root of that. But let's just stay within the scripture and see that that does not come from the Bible. He says, so, so what happened, these tongues are, are seated over each one of them, and they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What does this mean? Does it mean what we see in the Pentecostal movement? Let's read on. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. So while this is happening on Pentecost, as you saw even in Acts 18, verse 21, where um, the Apostle Paul is in Ephesus, and he has to leave Ephesus to get to Jerusalem in time for the feast. So this was a, a tradition that the Jews would come together to Jerusalem three times a year, Pentecost being one of them. There's the spring holy days, Pentecost, and then the fall holy days. They would come together and observe, devout Jews would observe in Jerusalem. And so, because this is a high day, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, notice this, devout men out of every nation under heaven. So who was in Jerusalem? Jews. Where did they come from? Every nation under heaven. So the Jews were spread out all over the world, and they made an effort three times a year to get back to Jerusalem. The devout ones. These are devout men. And three times a year they came back to Jerusalem. And who's there? Jews. Now, verse 6. When this was noised abroad, that is, this is what happened in the upper room with the, with the disciples who were waiting, and then they received the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, that when this was noised abroad, so it was communicated, they could, everybody could hear what was going on, especially this rushing mighty wind, then the multitude came together. Who are the multitude? the Jews. So the Jews that were in Jerusalem from every nation, when they heard all of this commotion, they came together and they were confused. Why were they confused? What was going on? Were people rolling on the floor, overtaken with the Spirit? Were they speaking in gibberish? What happened? Well, the scripture tells us what happened. There was this rushing mighty wind, cloven tongues sat upon each of the disciples, and they began to speak in other tongues. I'm, I'm reading from the King James Version of the Bible, which is my preference because it's the most accurate English translation. It's not perfect, but it's the most accurate. It's the, it's the most poetic and the most accurate. That's why I prefer it. But when, when it says other tongues, this is King, King James speak, King James uh, terminology for other languages. So they were all together. These tongues came upon them 
And then they all spoke in different languages. They were speaking in real languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So now, when all these Jews from all over the world that are in Jerusalem hear all of this commotion and they rush together, they're confused because every man heard them speak in his own language. So they were actually speaking sense. They were speaking a message. They were uttering the gospel. They were, they were witnesses of Christ's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And that's what they were preaching because they were witnesses of these things. It's just that they were given the power, the ability to preach this in different languages. And every man came, all the Jews came, and they heard them speaking in each of them, hearing them in, in their own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And you could even kind of get from the implication here, they're just Galileans. These are backwards people. And yet, all of them are speaking in such a way well, it goes on here in verse 8. He says, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue? Tongue, again, being uh, King James speak for language. How is it that these are, these are all Galileans, and yet all of us are hearing them speak in our own language? Wherein we were born. So, you know, it's one thing if uh, somebody learns a language. So here in Canada, Canada is officially a bilingual country and uh, English and French are the two official languages of Canada. I, I speak English, I don't speak French. I have a little bit of understanding of French so I can make things out if a street sign or something's written down, but if they're speaking, I can't uh, really understand them. But if I were to really devote myself to the language, and, and apply myself, I could learn French. It's not that far away from me. I could, you know, spend maybe two, three, four years and really develop it so that I could have conversational French. But everybody that I speak to would know that I'm not a native Frenchman. They would hear a heavy, a heavy English accent as I try to get my tongue around the French language. Likewise, when French people here grow up French, uh, in French communities, and then they learn English and, and, and communicate in English, we know right away that English is not their native tongue. But here he says, how is it that we hear of a man in our own tongue wherein we were born? So that there's an implication here that they have mastered the language perfectly, and you don't get any sense of a heavy accent within the language, that the language is just spoken clearly, and it's no longer a barrier. Many, many people, in fact, uh, draw the parallel to the Tower of Babel, where they were divided because of the languages. Now these different languages are being used to bring them together around the gospel message. So he says here, how is it that every man, we're, we're, in, in, we're hearing in our own tongue wherein we were born? And then he tells, you know, if when, when we went back to um, uh, verse 4, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues. Verse 7 and 8 and 9 really solved the problem for us. Or I should say, really, let's begin in verse 8. Uh, so what are these other tongues that they were speaking in? Well, he tells us, how hear we every man in our own tongue? These are the tongues. They could all hear in their own tongue. 
wherein they were born. And then he tells us the tongues. So these brethren that had the Holy Spirit come upon them, these are the tongues that they were speaking in. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and the strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues. And what are they speaking? Are they just speaking gibberish, rolling on the floor? Speaking in gibberish and they've lost control of their senses? Is that, what, is that what happened here? He tells us what happened. That the Holy Spirit came upon them. Tongues came upon them. They spoke in these tongues. These people who were born in these different nations had come together. They were all Jews. They had come together to worship in Jerusalem for the High Holy Day. And these men and women began to speak to them. And they, they could hear the, 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 what, what, what is it that they heard? The wonderful works of God. They were communicating to these Jews the wonderful works of God in the languages that the Jews spoke. That's what the Holy Spirit did. That's what it means to speak in tongues. That they were speaking in these languages and the languages are listed. And the content of the speech is, is articulated. It was the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what does this mean? How, how do we make sense of this? What is going on? However, verse 13, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. So, so they, they are drunk. And this verse 13, again, the Pentecostal movement, they will take this to say, this is, this is why we, we believe we can run around and fall down and, and wobble uh, and, and be nonsensical because we believe that that was what was happening here. And that's why they thought they were drunk. No, these were the ones that were mocking, that were trying to give an explanation. People are confused. What, what is going on? We need an explanation for this. And the mockers, the explanation they're giving is don't pay any attention to these people. They're drunk. Verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice, in other words, he shouted, and said unto them, You men of Judea, and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. So the day hasn't even begun. And, and nobody drinks that early. And even if they did start, they wouldn't be drunk by the third hour. Then he explains. That, so one narrative is they're drunk. Peter says, no, that's not the narrative. This is the narrative. He says, verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he begins to quote the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass... In the last days, so he's warning them, these are the last days. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters 
shall prophesy. So, so this is what's going to happen, that God is going to pour out his spirit in the last days, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord. So again, if you understand God's holy days, after Pentecost, the next holy day is trumpets. And these holy days, and again, if you don't uh, know what these holy days are or what they mean, please write to us. And you can again write to me directly, Adrian Davis at cgicanada.org. And we'll explain to you what the holy days mean. But Pentecost is really the founding of the church and the, the giving of the Holy Spirit. The next holy day in God's plan is trumpets. And it pictures the mighty return of Jesus Christ, the days of vengeance. The trumpet will be blown and, and, and Christ is going to appear. So what Peter is saying to them is, that, okay, this is what Joel said. This is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. So the next thing to happen now is trumpets and the return of Christ. When the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon will be turned to blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is, this is now he's telling them, look, this is, this is our time for salvation. And again, a lot of people will take this verse out of context and just think, oh, you just have to call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. That, that's not what he, he's quoting Joel. And there's a specific prophecy in Joel that these men, these are devout men. Remember the, the, the Luke writes that these men that were gathered in Jerusalem were devout men. So from that, we can understand that they knew the scriptures. In fact, they probably had all the scriptures memorized. And, and, and uh, Peter doesn't have to go into great detail about the prophet Joel. They probably have the whole book, the whole scroll memorized. But let's go back and read what Joel prophesied. And you'll find that in Joel, I mean, it's the whole book, but we'll just pick up chapter 2, chapters 2 and 3. And we'll just pick up a couple of verses here. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, Blow you the trumpet in Zion. So again, this is, this is the announcement of the return of, of the Lord. Blow the trumpet. It's a trumpet of war. It's the sound of war. It's the sound of, of victory for God's army, the, the, the Lord of hosts. Blow you the trumpet in Zion. And where does he blow it? In Zion. Because the prophecy shows us that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and left desolate. But now, blow the trumpet in that same Jerusalem. Because now victory has come to Jerusalem. Blow you the trumpet in Zion. And sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. God has a, con a controversy with the inhabitants of the land and what they're doing to his chosen people. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is near at hand. It's a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there has never been the like. Neither shall be any more after it, 
even to the years of many generations. So this is a great army that's against God's people that God is going to put down. Then we'll drop down to verse 18. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. So the Lord's land is being desecrated. And there are people that have moved in and taken over the land and claimed it to be theirs. And God has allowed this in order to punish his people, but he has not forgotten his people. He is going to act to save his people. So say all the prophets. If you study Isaiah, if you study Jeremiah, if you study Ezekiel, if you study Zechariah, if you study here Joel, all the prophets are pointing to the same thing. That the Lord has, in fact, we even go back to Deuteronomy, and we will in a moment, go back to Moses. It all begins with his prophecy. But all the prophets are saying the same thing. You, Israel, not, not the nation that we call Israel today, but the man Israel, he had 12 children. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah is just one of these 12 tribes. So the Jews are just one of the 12 tribes. People confuse it and think that Israel is Judah. The Jews and Israel are synonymous. They are not. All Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. Because Jews are just one of 12 tribes. So Jews are one twelfth of what it means to be Israel. But all the prophets see the same thing. That his covenant people Israel have broken the covenant and therefore have to be punished according to the covenant. Not made up punishments, but very specific punishments that are recorded in the covenant. Deuteronomy 28-29. So they have to be punished. But not completely. When we look into Deuteronomy 30, Moses shows them that although they're going to be disobedient, and although they're going to be punished, they will not be forgotten. That God will act to save them. And so here we see the same prophecy in Joel, here in, in chapter 2, verse 18, that at this time, when, when, when God's people are being thoroughly destroyed, and the land is desolate, then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yes, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied. The very opposite of their experience. They are going to be enslaved. They are going to be slaughtered. They are going to suffer famine. And yet God says in the midst of all of this, I'm going to send my people corn and wine and oil, and they shall be satisfied. And you shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. So the heathen are going to have the upper hand in Jerusalem. And God's people all over the world, his covenant people, are going to be subjugated. They're going to be humiliated. They're going to have to surrender to the heathen. And yet God says, I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. Finally, Jesus Christ will act. And when we read Zechariah 12, we see that the Jew in Jerusalem will finally acknowledge that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And so he's going to turn back the reproach. Verse 27, And you shall know, you shall know, that I am in the midst of Israel. Repeatedly in Isaiah and also in Jeremiah, God is known as the Holy One of Israel. Luke chapter 1 begins with the prophecy that when Jesus is born, that he will become the king of Jacob forever. That means Jacob must be forever. God 
will rule over these people forever. The heathen wants to wipe them out. And yet here, uh, as they suffer this intense persecution and subjugation and humiliation, here in verse 27, the, the ancient prophet Joel says, you shall know, or God says through Joel, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. That's why in Revelation 1, I believe it's verse 7, when, when he appears, that he will return with the clouds, and, and all eyes shall see him. And they that pierced him, the Jew, there's a, there's a calling out specifically of the Jew that slaughtered Christ, will finally acknowledge him. In fact, in Matthew 23, verses 34-35, he says that you will no more see me again until you say, until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And we see how they say that in Zechariah 12, that they plead for him. They acknowledge, they can't wait to see him. And they say, this is our God. Isaiah shows us, they'll finally say, this is our God in whom we have waited for. So you, at this time, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. So he, he calls to him repeatedly, he's named as the Holy One of Israel. Just Google that, don't Google that. Go into your Bible um, software, if you have Bible software, and just search that term. Holy One of Israel, and see how many times it comes up. God wants to be known as the Holy One of Israel. And he says here, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God. Nobody else. I am the Lord your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. So they're going to go through a process of deep shame and humiliation, and, and, and they're going to be fully mocked. But then God is going to reverse that, and they will never be ashamed again. And it shall come to pass. Now, this is the prophecy that Peter was understanding was coming to pass. So he, he could see that this is what's happening. That they, and they knew the scriptures. So these, these guys were saying, oh, these guys are just drunk. They're saying, no, we're not drunk. He's quoting now Joel 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Now, in the context of Joel, this is not speaking about Gentiles. And in the context of Acts 2, it is not speaking about Gentiles. We do not come to the opening up of the, the, the gospel to Gentiles until much later in the book of Acts. They are speaking specifically about Israel. So everything we've read in Joel is about Israel acknowledging their God and the heathen no longer being able to humiliate them once they acknowledge their true God. And so when it says, whosoever shall call, it's meaning whosoever of God's people, Israel. That at this time when they finally acknowledge him whom they've pierced, that they have this opportunity now to know the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Why? For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. So they are all devout men gathered there in Jerusalem. And Peter is telling them 
This is what the prophet Joel wrote, that those that are gathered in Jerusalem, that God's salvation and deliverance will be in Jerusalem. And those in Jerusalem that call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So the Lord shall call the remnant in Jerusalem. And those in Jerusalem who respond to that calling, there shall be deliverance for them. Now in chapter 3, continuing, verse 1 of Joel, For behold, in those days, and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah, that means to reverse, to, to, to stop the captivity, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations, and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage, Israel. So this is all this, this whole controversy is about his people, Israel, and how they have been treated by the heathen. And God is acting to deliver his people from the heathen. And so he's going to gather all nations. Again, it tells us the uh, armies are going to surround Jerusalem. And this is the Lord's work. He's gathering these nations to, to resolve this controversy about whose God is God, whose God reigns, who is the true God, who is the creator of the universe? And who are his people? I will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage, Israel. Israel is the heritage of God. God is going to inherit Israel forever. He's going to be known as the God of Israel forever. He's going to be glorified in Israel forever. He says through the prophet Isaiah that he will be glorified in Israel and he will not give his glory to another. His glory will absolutely never go to another, only Israel. He says, for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they, the heathen, have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So they've scattered Israel among the nations. And God is going to gather them from the nations. In fact, what I said earlier was that all the prophets... This is what, what, what Joel is prophesying here is no different than what all the prophets prophesied. And this all begins with Moses. Let's go all the way back to the Torah. And what did Moses write? In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 1, And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon you, what things? Well, we have to read Deuteronomy chapters 28, 29, the blessings and the curse. And it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, so there's blessings if they obey the covenant. There's curses if they disobey the covenant. And, and Moses is saying, all of it's going to come upon you. Yeah, you'll obey for a while, and you'll be blessed for a while, but then you're going to, you're going to be unfaithful, and you're going to disobey. And so the curses are going to come upon you, and not random curses. God, God is not some arbitrary God. He, he doesn't just react. He's a faithful God. And he does exactly what he says. He tells you what he will do, and he never deviates from it, because it's impossible for God to lie. And so he says that Moses writes that all of this is going to come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you. So we can read Deuteronomy 28, 29, and all of that is going to come to pass. And in fact, when we read the Bible, when we read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Judges, 
we have to read these 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 experiences of Israel with through or through the lens of Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29 because Moses tells us all these things are going to come to pass and and to this day this is this is what if we cannot understand what's happening in the world today unless we understand Deuteronomy the blessings and the curse and we understand who are the 12 tribes of Israel where are they today because this is what's happening and how God is then going to act to save these people he says the blessing and the curse which I have set before you and you shall call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So the heathen think that they are scattering God's people. The heathen think that they're taking God's people captive. But what Moses is saying here is that it's actually God that's allowing it. It's God that's doing it. Verse 2. And then you shall return. And, and when, you're, when you're in these different nations, you shall return unto the Lord your God. And you shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day you and your children with all your heart so moses could see the new covenant he could see that they were going to disobey the old covenant but that god would not be unfaithful to them that he would punish them according to his covenant but then he would initiate a new covenant where his law would be in their hearts and so that's why when we read in jeremiah 31 i believe it's uh, verse 31 that god says i'm going to have a new covenant with Israel and with Judah. He never says he's going to have a new covenant with Gentiles. The new covenant is with Israel and with Judah. And he talks about this new covenant and says he's going to put his law in their hearts. It's not going to be on tables of stone the way it was in the old covenant. Now he's going to put it in their hearts so that they will love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind. This can only happen when the Holy Spirit is within them. And so he says that it's going to it's going to come that you and your children will love the Lord and command and obey his commands with all your heart and with all your soul. That then the Lord, your God, will turn your captivity. In other words, he will end your captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the nations. Moses is telling us right here what's going to happen. You're going to be scattered to all the nations, and then God is finally going to act and end your captivity, and he's going to gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of yours be driven out unto the utmost parts of heaven, it doesn't matter. From there will the Lord your God gather you, and from there will he fetch you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will do you good and multiply you above your fathers. This is what all the prophets were saying. And this is what uh, Peter is now seeing, that they are gathered in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has come upon them. They are prophesying. And this is what Joel said. So the next thing to happen is for the Lord to return and to establish the kingdom and return the kingdom to Israel. And so that's what he's telling them. And that's why when we go back to Acts 2, verse 22, Peter now begins his sermon to them. And he says, he doesn't say, Oh, Gentiles, because, you know, salvation's for everybody who's called. Anybody who calls the name of Jesus Christ can be saved. After saying all of this and quoting the prophet, he then says, You men of Israel. 
you men of Israel, they've all heard the wonderful works of God proclaimed to them by the Holy Spirit in their own language. And somebody's accusing them of being drunk, the preachers of being drunk. And Peter says, no, this is what Joel said would happen. And the next thing to happen is for Christ to return and return the kingdom to Israel. And you're either with him or you're against him. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So this is very interesting. Because earlier Luke wrote in verse 5 that these were all Jews. And not just any kind of Jew. That all these Jews that were there in Jerusalem, he says they were devout men. They were devout men. So it's very clear to us, we must not confuse devotion with righteousness. You can be devout, but you're devoted to the devil. Devotion is not the, the, the measure of righteousness. And let's not be fooled by people who claim they're devout. And they pray so many times a day and they wear long robes and they speak of God. Devotion does not equal righteousness because you can be devoted to the devil. So these were devout men who were devoted to the devil. They were not devout to God. And so he says... You, you killed the Son of God by wicked hands. Your devotion is to the devil. He says here in verse 24, whom, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by death. And, and, and we see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So it was impossible for the grave to hold him because the scriptures promised that he would be in the grave exactly three days and three nights. Not, not uh, two days and one night, you know, he, or two nights and one day. That he, he died Good Friday and that he resurrected Easter Sunday. That violates the scripture. But it was impossible, so he has to satisfy the scripture. But then exactly after three days and three nights, it's impossible for the grave to hold him because he must rise according to the scriptures. And in fact, we see in Revelation 1 and verse 18, when, when, when John was given this vision and, and everything was revealed to him, we see in Revelation 1 and verse 18 where Christ says to him, I am he that lives and was dead. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So Christ has the keys to Hades and of, and of death. That he, can, he, 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 he has the ability to release people from the grave. He himself is no longer dead. He's the firstborn of many brethren. And so he has been born again from the, from the grave. And we, as Christians, are following in his path. And that's why we do not fear men, because Christ has the keys of death. Anybody who kills you, Christ can bring you back to life. 
back in Acts 2, verse 25, for David speaks concerning him, I foresaw the law, that the Lord, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance. So Peter is making this uh, argument to them from the scriptures that it was impossible for the grave to hold Christ. And that even if they look at the psalmist, David, and what he wrote, you can see from the psalm that it's impossible for Christ to stay in the grave. And he was quoting Psalm 16, and in Psalm 16, verse 8, we read, I have set the Lord always before me, always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, or here in, in the Hebrew, it's in Sheol. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. So the psalmist is speaking prophetically that the Holy One cannot stay in the grave, and he will not, be, uh, he will not decay as a regular human being in the grave. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So now, this is that's the psalm that uh, Peter was quoting. And so in his sermon now to these devout Jews, in verse 29, he says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. And so it's important that we have free speech. If our speech is, is incorrect, let it be proven wrong. But don't come with blasphemy laws or, or whatever uh, political correctness that impedes our speech. Let us speak freely. And then you go and search the scriptures. And you go and do whatever logical rationale or reasoning you have to do to see if these things are true. But the, the, the way the devil gets the upper hand is to limit free speech. Because he has no truth. And, and his, falsehood, his falsehood can be teased out with investigation and with logic and with scripture. But we speak freely and we want to be examined. And we want you to go and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. So in other words... There is no way David could have been speaking of himself. Because <laughs> there's his grave over there, and he's still dead. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Messiah to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades. Neither his flesh did see corruption. So, in other words, Peter is telling them, look, here's the psalm. 
David knew that God swore an oath to him that out of his seed would come the Messiah. Therefore, he was speaking prophetically when he wrote this psalm, and he was speaking of the resurrection of the Messiah. Verse 32, this Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. So this was their job, to be witnesses of the mighty works of God. And this is when, when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were speaking in these different languages. They were witnesses of the wonderful works of God. And now Peter's called everyone's attention and he's telling them, we are witnesses to these things. And that's where Christ in, in chapter 1 and verse 8 of Acts, Christ said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And God's people, Judah and Israel, have been scattered to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's important that you are my witnesses and take this message to them wherever they are. Back to Acts 2, verse 33. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. In other words, we are not drunk. This is God's faithfulness to his scriptures. And this is what's happening now. For David is not ascended into the heavens. So David is still in grave. But he says himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit you on my right hand until I make your foes your footstool. So he's now quoting Psalm 110. And, and he just has to take a snippet of the psalm. And these devout men, they have the whole thing memorized. They know the whole psalm. So it's a short psalm. Let's read it together. Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, so he's speaking to the Messiah. The Lord shall send the rod of strength out of Zion rule you in the midst of your enemies. So Zion has enemies, but the Messiah will rule from Zion in the midst of these enemies. Again, Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies, heathen armies, but they're going to be put down by the Messiah. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn this is what the psalmist is writing, that the Lord has sworn and shall not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's another topic altogether, the Melchizedekian order. But Christ is coming now as a high priest of the Melchizedekian order, which Paul elaborates in great detail in the book of Hebrews. Verse 5. The Lord at your right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. So these kings, these heathen kings are going to be put down. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. This is what the, the Feast of Trumpets pictures. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. So this is, this is Psalm 110. That that's that's what it all that's that's what it means when he says that the Lord will make your enemies your footstool. So 
So this is what's happening next. So this is what's happening now. The Holy Spirit's being shed abroad, and, 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 and we're now preaching this. And the next thing to happen is for the Messiah to return, and to return the kingdom to Israel, and to reign with strength from Zion. Back to Acts 2, verse 36. Because of all of this, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. So he's not. this is not a message to Gentiles. The, the Gentiles don't come into the picture until much later. We'll, we'll get there as we go through line by line, chapter by chapter, the book of Acts. But this doesn't come until later, but even Acts 9, when, when God calls Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. But for now, this is exclusive. All of this that's happening is exclusive to Israel. And so he, he and we'll explain how, how and why the Gentiles when we get there. But for right now, keep it focused. This is an exclusive thing. This is a covenant with Israel. And now there's this new covenant with Israel where God gives his Holy Spirit. And they, they love him and serve him with their whole heart. Because the law is no longer written on tablets of stone. It's now written in their hearts. So after saying all of this, and how God is going to put down the heathen and exalt Zion, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, without any doubt, that God has made that same Jesus, whom you devout Jews, that same Jesus whom you devout Jews have crucified, God has made that Jesus both Lord and Messiah. So these scriptures that you're reading in the Psalms, these passages that we're quoting to you in, in by the prophet Joel, this is who you've crucified. Now, when they, that is the devout Jews, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart because they realized what, what, what is going on here, how God is fulfilling his promise to restore Israel, to restore the kingdom to Israel. And to crush their enemies. And they have to decide which side of the fence are they on. Are they inside the fence with God and his people? Or are they on the other side of the fence with the heathen who persecute God and his people? Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They're in a desperate situation now. They've realized they've been devoted to the devil. And they've been doing the work of the devil. And, and suddenly they realize they've got to get right with God. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, I just want to read now a passage in Jeremiah just to understand, again, the gravity of all of this. Why were they in such a state? When they were saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? Why the panic? Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll just read a couple of uh, verses from here. A few passages. In chapter 2, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, that is Jeremiah, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem. This is to Jerusalem. Saying, thus saith the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth the love of your espousals. When you went after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. 
So this is when he was bringing them out of Egypt, and they, they followed him faithfully. They were had, glad to come out of Egypt, and they were in the wilderness, and the land wasn't uh, developed yet, but they were just happy to be with the Lord. Verse 3, Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the first fruits of his increase. So, so he's going to have an increase, but Israel was the first fruits of that increase. All that devour him shall offend. So if you, if you persecute Israel, this is offensive to God. Evil shall, call, shall come upon them, says the Lord. So anybody who's persecuting Israel, evil will come upon them, says, so says the Lord. Hear you the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passes through and where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. They seem like, why aren't they asking for me? I did all of this. How, how come they're not asking, where am I? But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that do not profit. Therefore, I will yet plead with you, says the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isles of Chittim, and see, and send them to Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Has a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. In other words, when you look at these nations around about, they're devoted to their gods. But my people are not devoted to me. They've changed their glory, that is, their glory is in God, but they've changed it for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O you heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid. Be you very desolate, says the Lord. <clears throat> for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold, that can hold no water. Verse 14. Is Israel a servant? <clears throat> is he a homeborn slave? Why is he spoiled? Israel is supposed to be glorified. It's supposed to be the head nation. Exodus 19. It, it's supposed to, the, the world is supposed to look to Israel for truth. And now he's been enslaved. The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. So this is, this is the future of the land. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the children of Noth and Tahapanes have broken the crown of your head. Have you not procured this unto yourself? So this is your own fault. You've done this to yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led thee by the way. So this, this is why in Acts 2, verse 37, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They're, they're beginning to understand the prophecies, that they have forsaken God. And as a result of forsaking him, he is going to punish them severely. But he is going to act and redeem them, those that, those that respond to the call. That's why it says, whosoever... Uh, shall shall call on the name of the Lord, shall be delivered. 
this is all exclusive to Israel. This has not yet gone out to the Gentiles. So they're speaking of the specifically Judea, the Jews, that if you call on the name of the Lord now, you will be saved. If not, you will be destroyed. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This is, this is the prophetic word that your Jacob's sins will be washed from him. So say all the prophets. You can see it in Malachi, you can see it in Isaiah, you see it in Joel, you see it in Zechariah. It's, it's all the prophets are saying, even, do, even Moses in the Torah. So they're saying, what shall we do? Well, you better repent. That's step one. Repent means to stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop where you're going. Turn around and go the opposite way. It's a 180. So whatever you're doing now, stop it and do the opposite. That's what it means to repent. And so the first order of business to come into this way, this path with Christ, you need to stop doing what you're doing. Repent. Do the opposite of what you're doing. Stop doing the wickedness and do righteousness. And all of those that say, oh, God, has, Christ has done it all for you. That means you can continue sinning. That's the opposite of what's, what's required. What's required is heartfelt repentance. Repent. And then be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift. It's a gift. You can't earn it. Then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you. There, there is a, this is associated with a promise. And this promise is unto you and to your children. And to all that are afar off. And again, if we understand this in context, he's speaking specifically of Israel that have been scattered where Moses said, it doesn't matter how far away you've been scattered, from there the Lord your God will gather you. So this promise is unto you and to your children and to the rest of the house of Israel that are afar off, because God is going to gather them from the four corners of the earth, from the four winds, the north wind, the south wind, the east wind, the west wind, from the four corners, north, east, west, and south. It doesn't matter how far, because of their disobedience, it doesn't matter how far they've been scattered, because of God's faithfulness, from there he will gather them. And so this is what Peter means when he says, for the promise. So he says, you men of Israel, he actually begins this sermon saying, you men of Israel, listen to me. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so if we go back to Deuteronomy 30 in verse 3, he says that then, this is what Moses, this is Moses, that then the Lord your God will turn or end your captivity. That this is, this is when he will turn your captivity or, or reverse it and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So they've been scattered to all the nations. And that's why he said that the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. In Isaiah 11 and verse 12, the prophet Isaiah writes, And he shall set up a, an ensign or a flag, a standard for the nations, 
that's for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So this is it. There, there are far off the outcasts of Israel and the dispersed of Judah, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's going to assemble them. He's going to gather them together from the four corners of the earth. In Isaiah chapter 24 and verse 23, he says, Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed. So he's seeing the same thing that the prophet Joel saw. When the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients graciously. Back to Acts 2 and verse 40. He says, <clears throat> Acts, Acts 2 verse 40. And with many other words did he testify. So he said a lot more. This is, this is what Luke was able to record. But Luke is also letting us know. He said a lot more as well. And, and whatever he said would be according to these prophecies. And with many other words did he testify. And so remember, Christ was with them for 40 days. And he showed them from the scriptures everything and what he was doing and how it was being fulfilled. And so now they have, they have a PhD in the scriptures and in the prophecies. And so with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Like, it's happening now. And Christ is coming with vengeance. And he is fierce in his anger. And you need, to, you need to separate yourselves from the enemies of God. And save yourselves and, and, and get right with God. Save yourself from this untoward generation or this corrupt or crooked generation. And, and if, if his generation was crooked, what would you say about ours? When, when you look around what's happening in the world today, would you say that we are an untoward generation? Verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. So not everybody, but those that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And this is interesting as well because uh, 3,000 souls were lost previously when the law was given, but now 3,000 souls are saved. So there were about, uh, I believe it was 120 uh, disciples at this time. And... Um, and now added another 3,000. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So they really came to understand the teaching. So he, he taught them with many other words. And the other apostles were teaching as well. And they had the ability to teach them in their own language. So if you spoke Arabic, and we see that there were Arabs there, Jews that were in Arabia, if you spoke Arabic, you heard the, the wonderful works of God in Arabic. If you were a Parthian, you heard the wonderful works of God, of God in the Parthian language. If you were an Egyptian, you heard the wonderful works of God in the Egyptian language. And so they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And we'll talk about that later uh, as we go through Acts. But these are the same wonders and signs that Christ did that were recorded in the book of Luke. That now his body is doing these same things. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. And, and this is truly a beautiful time when they, they really thought this was the end. Now, now Peter did not understand perfectly. We can look back over 2,000 years and see that 
you know, the church, Peter didn't really understand the church age. In fact, uh, in Acts 1, I believe it's verse 8, uh, God says, it's not for you to know. So he says, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They really believed that it was imminent. And, and Christ said to them, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that God has put into his, his own power. But instead, you're going to be given the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses. That's what you need to focus on. So here, all that believed had all things in common, had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. So they were just there's a lot of fellowship here. They were going from different brethren's homes. They were just just in such joy over understanding that Jesus was the Christ. Praising God, verse 47, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So not only the 3,000 on that day, but continuing, as they were continuing this uh, joy and fellowship and preaching, every day more people were being convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And they were being added to the church daily. So that is Acts chapter 2. And this is such an exciting book. This is going to be an amazing, amazing book. Please tell your friends about this study. Next week, God willing, we'll be in Acts chapter 3. And, and it is just going to be amazing how this story unfolds. When we read it line by line, here a little, there a little, and we put it all together, we're going to see quite an opposite picture emerge than what you are taught in the traditional Christian church. And we have to know the truth, especially now, uh, us upon whom the ends of the, of the world have come. That this is a very, very dangerous time. We can, we can repel the works of Satan with the truth of God. So God bless you. Thank you for joining. And God willing, we'll be together next week. And again, if you need any additional information, please uh, feel free to write me, Adrian Davis, at cgicanada.org.